on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's on the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg. How are you, Sally? <laughs> Good, there's just this silence now that I don't have to indemnify anyone against my terrible opinions on this podcast. I can just speak for myself and and wear the blame. (laughs) Just leave it all out on the field. Have you had an okay week? Yeah, it's been fine. It's the same. Like you asked me this last week and I was like, it's the same and sort of gave you an update about my cats. And so it's been the same and I have updates about my cats, but I'll, I'll spare the listeners and I'll spare you because really that's that's not what they've come here to listen but to. But to keep that theme running, we talked about cat dentistry last week, an important niche sort of service that's provided. Following on that, from that, I'm having to visit the dentist tomorrow and it's the first, can I confess this? This is a terrible confession, but this is my first dentist visit in over about a decade. Now, does that make me a bad person? Should I be going regularly to the dentist? I've never had any problem with my teeth. Now I've got a sore tooth, but I feel like I should be really worried when I go there that said dentist is going to discover a world of hurt that I'm about to enter into, that I'm going to be sucked into the, the rabbit hole of dentistry and have my whole face reconstructed. (laughs) So dentists are this weird thing, right, where like, I mean, ideally people generally would see a dentist regularly for care and also, you know, the fact that this is like quite an important part of our bodies sort of smack bang in the middle of our face and associated with a lot of like internal processes and like external processes. But um, yeah, I know lots of people who don't go to the dentist very often either because they can't afford it, like that's a huge thing, or they find the experience a bit frightening, which is which is me. Like I, not frightening. I just like I really hate lying down and feeling sort of not in control with people shoving instruments in my mouth. Like I think that makes sense, maybe. But I don't think you're a bad person. However, I'm really happy to hear that you're going after ten years. No judgment. I'm just happy for you. I'm happy that that's going to happen. So, yeah, let us know how it goes. I will let you know how it goes. I think it's because I watched The Little Shop of Horrors when I was younger and ever since I saw that film uh, with the deaf dentist, I've never wanted to go back to the dentist ever again. Mm, My mouth is full of those old grey metal fillings because when I grew up we were very poor and so, like, yeah, just my teeth have got these sort of, like, vintage, old-fashioned metal fillings. Yeah, I've had experiences where dentists have shamed me for having, like, the wrong fillings, being like, oh, how old are you? Why do you have these? And I'm sort of like, help me, I'm poor. They gave you a chart like you go into yeah. a paint shop and say, oh, no, I'll have, you know, I'm just going to go through the colour chart of which, which fillings I want. I mean, as if you have a choice. I'm like, I'm here now. I'm paying you now. <laughs> Please be nice to me. I can't answer you anyway because my mouth's open and you're sticking instruments in it. Uh, anyway, pray for me tomorrow. I'll go to the dentist um, and hopefully – oh, you know what I'm going to ask though is about having my teeth cleaned properly for the first time with the big brush. No, I do – I brush my teeth. I am obsessively with, with my dental hygiene. Like I brush after every meal and I floss, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I am jealous of people who have white teeth. Is that wrong? No, I think that's fine. But I uh, like – I think people who have very white teeth normally have it done – 
they have it done. Like people don't usually make it to sort of like their third and fourth decade on this earth and have teeth that look like the ones on television. I think, yeah, people usually pay for that sort okay. of thing. Glad that we sorted all this out. Hey, let's meet somebody for our podcast today who I've wanted to get on for ages now who does have a perfect set of choppers and is the co-host of the week on Wednesday, another great podcast. It is Ben Davison. Hi, Ben. Hi, Sally. Hi, Francis. It's really great to be here. And, uh, yeah, I have to say uh, I, I haven't been to the dentist in a long time either, but uh, lots of brushing and uh, I'm not going to say which brand because I don't want to give them a free plug, but I do use one of those repair toothpastes with the whitening. So, yeah, even then mine is still getting a bit yellow. So I'm, I'm with Sally. Anyone who's got bright white teeth, you can guarantee they're putting money in some dentist's pocket every week. <laughs> You'll see me next week. I'll be sort of, I'll be sort of luminous in the, in the chat, Sally. <laughs> I'll be sort of glowing. <laughs> anyway, Ben, how are you? We need to tell people about The Week on Wednesday. It's a podcast that you do with Van Batham. It comes out, funnily enough, every Wednesday. And it's you doing, you know, talking politics, talking work, talking all the important issues, and it's going gangbusters. Yeah, no, it's been great. And people's response has been sort of overwhelmingly positive, I have to say. We've been going for just over a year now, and the audience continues to grow, and that's really because people get behind it and share it. And we talk about the sort of big issues of the day and, and of the week. And and I do a little weekend wrap on the Sunday to try and get people back into a headspace, I guess, about you know the current affairs that might come up. But fundamentally, we're talking to people who seem to want to get a bit more behind the scenes about what's in the news, get a bit more of an analysis. Obviously, Van writes her column for The Guardian, so she's constantly consuming huge amounts of political media and myself with my background, you know, when I can stomach watching the news, I do. And then we try and just bring the threads together. You know, there's a lot that's going on and sometimes the sheer quantum can be overwhelming and we go, well, let's focus on two or three important political issues, link them to to people's lives. And yeah, it's been great. We really appreciate everybody's support and yeah, it's, it's uh, hopefully something we can keep doing for the, for years and years to come. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ben, you mentioned then your background. For the listeners who sort of paused then and thought, I don't know what that is, can you give us a sense of what your background is? Yeah, so I worked at the Australian Council of Trade Unions for a little while with Francis, which was fantastic. Uh, I was chief of staff there for two different secretaries and got the great opportunity to work closely with Sally McManus uh, for a number of years. And before that, I worked in the not-for-profit sector for a United Care organisation. I was CEO and then in, and in the health sector with Diabetes Australia. So really from a values-driven kind of career background. And, you know, a lot of my work has also been uh, looking at the, the politics of these things, the campaign side, but also the, the finances and how money is used to set policy, to create policy outcomes, and sometimes used to create policy outcomes that help people who already had the money to begin with. So, yeah, that, that's my background, and I, I bring that to the conversation. Van, of course, has a much, much more politically activist background, uh, and uh, if anybody's ever seen the photo of her dressed as a climate angel at the Paris Climate Conference, whacking a gendarm in the face with her angel wings, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's uh, it's never a competition in our house about who's the most activist because she always wins hands down. <laughs> 
So you worked with Francis, hey. Tell us, what, what's he like in the in the workplace? Does he do any of those things that sort of heats up a tuna meal in the middle of <laughs> in the middle of the office or like you know, not refill the paper in the printer, like spill the beans. What's Francis like in the workplace? Well, as you know now that about my dental hygiene stuff, you'll know that I floss in meetings. Yeah, he's always picking his teeth. Always, always picking his teeth. Sits there, gets the pen out, digs away. It's very distracting, Sally. Uh, no, look, Francis is great. Francis is great to work with. Like, um, as people who listen to this show will know, like he's a he's a smart, passionate guy, values driven. You know, it'd be good if he turned. It'd be good if he turned up on time and you know didn't didn't try and smoke in the office. No, he doesn't do any of that. He, he, <laughs> I have to say though, Sally, I never once saw him change the uh, copy of papers. So maybe, maybe wow. there is, maybe there is something to that. But uh, no, nah, he's great to work with. Great to work with. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Ben. Thank you for that ringing endorsement. We're glad to have you on the podcast. There's a bunch of things we want to talk about with you and get your expertise on today. And I wanted to start with with one issue that uh, will be of real interest and concern to everybody on this pod. Is that on Friday, so a couple of days after you hear this, will be the deadline for the mandatory vaccination of aged care and disability workers across Australia. So it's mandated by the federal government. And, you know, I think people in that sector, which you know really well, Ben, uh, are holding their breath on this because it will once again, it feels like it's going to make life really difficult for, for workers in that sector because they're already short of staff. There already aren't enough sort of like a patient staff ratio or resident staff ratio as it is. And they're going to lose, it would feel, at least somewhere between 9 and 5% of the workforce who won't be vaccinated come Monday or across the weekend when they're supposed to be at work. So once again, even after the, the Aged Care Royal Commission that we've just had, workers in that sector are going to carry the burden of looking after residents who will need that care but won't have the same level of resource directed their way. Yeah, it, it, it really is an outrageously poorly designed piece of policy because, as you've pointed out, the Aged Care Royal Commission was explicit in the fact that the aged care sector is understaffed and already we know the disability sector is understaffed and we know that there's an increasing fragmentation of those sectors into insecure work. Let's just take, for example, the disability sector component of that. So... Part of what the government has tried to do to offset some of these um, potential uh, loss of workers dropping out of the system is to say that they would fund registered NDIS providers $150 per staff member to get vaccinated. Now, that's great. That's a good incentive for registered providers. But a huge chunk of the sector is now unregistered providers. That means there is no incentive. Now, when it all boils down what the problem here is, is how that sector is set up. And it's not set up to encourage the workers in the sector. It's not encou- It doesn't encourage people to go into the sector. It doesn't encourage secure employment into the sector. It doesn't provide for paid leave for big chunks of the sector. So fundamentally, you know, slapping Band-Aids on top of Band-Aids is not going to deal with the, with the issue, which is, as you say, workers are going to fall out of the system and the people who need care, support and service are going to suffer as a result. I shudder to think where we might be in two or three weeks in both aged care and disability if this is mandated and enforced in the kind of way that it probably needs to be. There's no question, people need to get vaccinated. 
But there is a question about how that happens. There's a question about whether there's enough vaccines. And there's a question about how the workers are supported when they need to take time off because they're sick or because they have a bad reaction or whatever the case might be. And at the moment, frankly, Francis, I have real significant concerns about how that's going to play out. So, like, fully aware that you haven't designed this policy, Ben, and and you're not, like, accountable for the holes in it or anything like that. But I'm wondering, obviously, this is a workforce who should be vaccinated for a variety of reasons. So what do you see as an alternative to making it mandatory? With the caveat that I'm not on team mandatory here, I'm just interested in, in what you think some other solutions could be. Well, I think it's about how you put the supports in place. So as, as I said, with the disability sector, for example, there is a financial support available for registered providers. Now, the government's made a rod for its own back by allowing registered and unregistered providers. So there's no support for that part of the sector. I think you've got to put in place supports for everybody in the sector. And you've got to have, you've actually got to have a level playing field here too, right? Because there are employers in this space who are going to be impacted as well. So I'm not opposed to the idea that you say in critical industries where there are vulnerable people and an outbreak of something like COVID would have devastating and fatal consequences, we require people to have vaccines and to protect those people. I'm not opposed to that, but it's about saying there is paid vaccination leave. There is financial support for people to go and get these things done. If you are sick, you've got access to sick leave. Like when you think about the fact that in Australia, you've got up to 40% of workers who don't have access to paid sick leave, and often in those kind of industries, aged care and disability, you get your vaccine and then you're sick for two days, you lose two days pay. And in a low-paid sector, two days pay, as you both know, that's half your rent money after half the time. And, dollar. like, one quick follow-up. When you say unregistered providers, what do you mean by that? To me, I hear, you know, an unregistered aged care provider and it's quite easy to be like, well, who are they? <laughs> what, what are they doing there? <laughs> Primarily when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about the disability sector. So that's to do with the NDIS. So in the NDIS, you can be a registered or an unregistered provider. And a registered provider essentially has to adhere to a whole series of regulations around reporting, around accident and incident reports, around how they use medication, including medical restraints and physical restraints. And also, obviously, they have to do certain reports around their workforce. The unregistered section of the NDIS has been described to me as the Wild West, where effectively anybody with an ABN can sign up. I was going to say register, but it's unregistered, so they can sign up and they can provide support and bill through to the NDIS. There's none of the kind of reporting, registration requirements, uh, record-keeping requirements that a registered provider has to do. So there's a real two-tiered system in the disability support sector, and frankly, it creates these sort of weird situations where Everybody who works in the sector needs to be vaccinated. That makes sense. But the government's only able to provide support to the registered section because really they don't know really who's in the unregistered section. So there's a whole shadow workforce, if you like, of individuals operating off an ABN, providing services, and the government's not really keeping track of that. 
And services of varying quality, you'd imagine, too, and it uh, always has been an issue when governments start providing funding for institutionalised servicing, uh, that they know guaranteed income for certain people that it will attract cowboys and, and uh, those who are going to exploit it to do so. I want to play you something that uh, is, is about this particular issue, and, and it talks to what we've been discussing, and it's with an interview I did with Lauren Hutchins from the Health Services Union, uh, the HSU. Uh, she is the Aged Care and Disabilities Division Secretary in New South Wales and Queensland and also part of the ACT and she talks about the the real impact on workers who are going to have to adjust their working patterns and the demands on them in the next couple of weeks as this uh, vaccination mandate has uh, its effect on what they're doing and how they work. So what the flow onto this is we, we may we will get to 100% vaccinated workforce, but how many workers do we lose? And those workers, you know, have made a decision not to work in aged care, and that is okay. Like, okay, you, you, this is mandatory. You, you can't work there. But what happens to the workers that are left behind? Even if we lose 5% of the workforce out of this, we've already got a workforce that is under stress and under-resourced. It will mean that 12 hours, 10-hour rosters will become the norm, which is hugely problematic, and that we will see incredible stress on those remaining workers. You know, we, we couldn't afford to lose 1%. To lose 5% is going to put huge strains on an already stressed workforce. Now, stressed workforce, these guys have been on the front line for 18 months. You think about our states, that means full PPE for eight, 10-hour shifts, donning and doffing constantly there. You're working in workplaces where residents with dementia who are now not having any family or friends visit them, who are highly agitated, highly stressed, and you're not only their carer, but you're also having to support them in with mental health. You are doing every aspect of their care that otherwise the community would be able to step in. It has been a highly stressful workplace without now having fewer workers on the floor to actually undertake that work. Lauren Hutchins there from the HSU talking about just how tough Ben and Sally it's going to be for workers now that the mandatory vaccine mandate has passed and there are going to be less people turning up for work and the same demands are going to be there on them, Sally. Yeah, and the portrait just painted then is frightening, I think. You know, the way she's described that 1% would be bad enough and 5% is sort of potentially catastrophic. But the solution here, you know, to my mind, can't be that unvaccinated people are able to continue working in, you know, workplaces where they provide care to people who would be particularly vulnerable to this virus. Like, there's almost like a false equivalence between or a false binary between like, well, if we mandate vaccinations, it may, then then that is what will lead to this disaster in the workforce, which is what Ben was talking about previously. It's sort of like, well, that will be a, a symptom <laughs> just to stick with the medical talk. But the, the problem is already there and this will just exacerbate it. And, and yeah, I, re- I really can't see a solution with vaccinations aren't mandated because it will mean that the workforce will be strained. There's got to be better and safer solutions here. I totally agree with Sally. You can't have a situation where vulnerable people at higher risk of being exposed to something like COVID. At the same time, the government has effectively undermined the capacity of this sector by not keeping up the standards by not getting more people into the sector. And the cost of this is going to be the burnout that then impacts the workers. And and it, it 
it's hard to see, frankly, how we get through this without there being significant physical cost because there are physical elements to aged care. I mean, my mum's wife is in aged care and there's lifting, there's carrying, people have falls, there's a lot of physical elements to it, but also the the mental health and psychological impacts of doing those 10, 12-hour shifts with people who are distressed, who are in need of care. You know, we're going to exacerbate a problem that the Aged Care Royal Commission had already identified and we need to have proper workforce planning. That involves the unions. That involves the workers in the sector talking about what it's really like and how do you incentivise people to go into this sector? How do you make sure they're properly trained? How do you make sure they've got a career path so that they don't do 12 months, 18 months and go, this is too hard. I don't want to do this. For this kind of money, this is not worthwhile. I think it's also worth remembering that we're having this conversation right now about the workforce in disability care and aged care, importantly, because this is what our podcast is about, and also because it's a really pressing, urgent issue. But ultimately, the people who are going to be impacted the most are the people who are receiving care. I think that our friend from the HSU, who Frances, you played a grab of before, I think she would, you know, remind our listeners and us that, yeah, it's really, really hard on this workforce at the moment, but this, every person in that workforce does what they do in order to provide care for our friends and family members and neighbours who are disabled or elderly or otherwise frail. Ultimately, it's that section of our community who will suffer the most, which is a huge shame. On the Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the Job, Francis Leach, Sally Rugg and Ben Davison with you. Ben, you live in and around near Ballarat. Uh, are you back in lockdown or did the, uh, the current lockdown that's been imposed on the wonderful Goldfields town uh, just miss your front doorstep? Thankfully, I, I've been spared, but my, my mum is in lockdown in Ballarat and as listeners to the week on Wednesday, I know Van's in lockdown in Sydney and obviously you, Francis, and all, all the fine people I work with in Melbourne are in lockdown. So I'm sort of free to go nowhere in a way. <laughs> Lots of nice walks in the countryside, but um, which you know I'm very grateful for. But yeah, it's a very weird feeling to go. I'm not locked down, but most of the places I'd want to go, I can't get to. <laughs> you do get kind of used to your own neighbourhood, don't you, Sally? Have you have you walked every street of your neighbourhood yet? Yes, I have. More so when they're so we're under a curfew at the moment, and so with little kids, I'll go to the park um, with my daughter and stuff. But with little kids, like it's difficult to go for a walk by yourself during sort of like child caring hours. And so, and you know, for my partner and I, if one of us wanted to go for a walk after a dinner. Too bad you can't. So, yeah, less so at the moment. But one of the wonderful things, one of the silver linings of lockdown is and being at home literally all the time is that my partner Kate and I have become friends with our postie, which started last year. You know, she would um, ride by and we'd say hello. And it's been really lovely to sort of get to know her a little bit and have a chat a couple of times a week. And, you know, to the point where our postie sort of gave my partner a card for her birthday. And when she comes to the door, we sort of ask about her cats and talk about our cats, you know, like, so it's been really nice to sort of connect with community. Like I would have never met 
my postie before because I would have always been at work, right? So that's been a nice element. <laughs> oh, there's a win from the lockdown. That's fantastic. I'm glad to hear it. And yeah. of course, it's good that the posties are still uh, being able to uh, continue their work in these difficult times. I know that you're working at home, Ben, and, and you are as well, Sally, but imagine if you're studying at home as well, trying to do your tertiary studies. It's pretty hard steering into a, uh, a screen doing your lectures, trying to do tutorials and then writing your papers and whatnot. Uh, the tertiary sector is under enormous pressure at the moment, as we know, but there was a report that came out this week from the Centre for Future Work as part of the Australia Institute, which was called An Avoidable Catastrophe, and it talked about the huge cataclysmic job losses in the tertiary sector. Jim Stanford is uh, from the Centre for Future Work. He was one of the co-authors of this uh, report, which revealed just how deep the cuts have been. I had a chat with him earlier in the week. I just want you to have a listen to what he had to say about just how deep the cuts have been and the impact it has had on all of those who are hoping to study in the tertiary sector or, or the adult learning sector. I knew that Australian universities had been hard hit by the pandemic. That was obvious. You know, after all, we closed the borders, international students couldn't come, and international students make up a huge share, about one-third of all the revenues that uh, Australian universities get. So no surprise that they were suffering. I was surprised by two things. Number one, the scale of the job loss, 40,000 positions lost from tertiary education in the last 12 months. And number two, that they're getting worse, not better. Even as the rest of the economy opened up and we regained most of the jobs that were lost early in the pandemic, Australian universities' job losses were growing uh, because the universities were cracking down on hiring, given their pessimism that international students would return anytime soon. You know, uh, I think over the last couple of decades, a lot of universities, you know, have kind of built empires based on this uh, international students really hitting up those students for outrageously high tuition fees. And in some cases, I would say neglecting their ultimate purpose, which should be a public service for Australians. Australian universities have kind of been a poster child for casualization, you know, for the last uh, several years. You've seen universities shift more and more to hiring people on a, a sessional instructor basis, you know, a few months work here, a few months work there, and cutting back the poor academic faculty. Um, and again, that is jeopardizing the purpose of the university. You know, university is not just there to, you know, run as many kids through the classroom as possible. The university is there to be a, a stable, independent center for research and education. And uh, that means you've got to have uh, permanent academic staff. You can't treat the whole thing just as a casual job. Um, unfortunately, we are now seeing another step up in casualization in the universities because in this latest round of job losses over the last 12 months um, most of the jobs lost have been permanent jobs most of the jobs lost have been full-time jobs. Jim Stanford there from the Centre for Future Work at the Australia Institute talking about 40,000 40,000 job losses in the tertiary sector. Uh, he wrote a paper called Avoidable Catastrophe, uh, which was published this week on this particular issue. Man, it must be tough at the moment, Ben, in the tertiary sector, A, as a student, but also for all those casual and seasonal workers who are now being asked to do so much more work in lieu of just how many of their colleagues have disappeared. It boggles the mind. You know, in the working class communities where I grew up, academics and academia was seen as an ivory tower. They were seen as permanent jobs, jobs for life, 
secure employment. And and now you start to see figures like 70% of the workforce are casualised, 40,000 jobs lost. There was reports last week of thousands of casuals getting letters being told, no, you won't be offered permanent employment. The total inversion of of academia. And of course, what's the outcome of that? It goes to what Jim was saying, is that the outcome of that is that you lose the intellectual institutions that are the bulwark of our democracy. These are the places that generate thought, that engage people in critical thinking, that give people the skills and the abilities to engage in what is such a fundamental part of our democracy, and that is educated debate. And of course, it also means that people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds find it harder to get in. You know, we know that that's what happens. We've seen that trend over the last few decades. It must be devastating to be an academic in that cycle. And of course, my partner has worked previously as an academic and still has many friends who are in academia and they are retiring early. They are leaving the industry. We have one situation and we sort of joked about it on our podcast because we did a, a live version from a festival in Wagga, which of course is where Charles Sturt University is from. And one of the academics there who Van was doing some work with um, in the in the theatre side of things was given a class timetable that had 200 hours a week of classes on it. You know, the, the, it was just... Yeah, it, it, I mean, we we laughed, and and it and it's to a degree, it's funny, right? But this guy, who's like sort of the last remaining full time staff member in the whole school of of this particular discipline, had to literally go back to administration and go, "You have assigned me more class hours than there are hours of the week. This is not <laughs> physically possible." But that's the sort of thing that workers in this sector are, are now experiencing, and. And of course, the knock-on effect is that students don't get that experience. They don't get teachers with experience. They don't get the engagement and the learning and the time to set aside. I mean, I was very fortunate when I was at university that I had some of my lecturers who were prepared to put in the time outside of the classroom because they had that space afforded to them by the university. So we could have debates around Cold War politics and about left and right and what it meant and getting a really good understanding, not just of the of the prescribed texts, but the context in which those texts operated. And it's troubling to think that we will lose that and what that might mean for how our country functions into the future. We probably all know people who want to be academics or have worked in academia who just no longer can do it because it just, as a way of making a living, it's so insecure and given the amount of work you have to do to actually become capable of teaching at that level, the cost-benefit analysis just doesn't add up anymore. Yeah, I think that's completely right. And I would also say that I think that this is probably by design. I think that we here in Australia have had a coalition government for the last, God, what year is it? You know, like eight years who have been completely upfront about their disdain for universities, perhaps that's strong language, but in terms of cuts to universities, in terms of essentially trying to abolish arts degrees, not quite, but, you know, sort of like raising, you know, the fees of various arts degrees to such extraordinary high levels that, you know, it doesn't make any sense to do these degrees, particularly if you come from a working class or middle class background. I don't think that this has been a an accidental byproduct of increased casualisation. I think this has been a 
a by design on purpose restructuring of universities from a government who like really doesn't seem to care for higher education. Which seems counterintuitive in lots of ways um, because they, unless you look at it from the perspective that they simply see it as a profit centre, as a way of turning out workers and entrepreneurs who are going to make money, the learning side of it is by the by. It's almost a vocational in the most literal sense now. So all those other elements that we might love about universities that Ben talked about are anathema to what they want universities to be. And universities themselves are taking on the cloak of being entrepreneurial and profit centres. That's what they are, building empires for themselves in a sort of education industrial complex. I think that's totally right. But I would just I'll just add that the description that Ben gave um, your time at university, Ben, about sort of like having discussions with your lecturers or tutors after class about texts and politics. And so I went to university 10 years ago and even 10 years ago, it's completely different. That could be for a variety of reasons. But so like for me and for most people who I was in classes with, like I was working full time straight after school and I I put myself through university, but a person my age and my generation doesn't go to university and and that's the only thing you do and you sort of go to campus um, and spend time with peers and go to, you know, various lectures and stuff. Like my university experience was like squeezing in the recordings of lectures through my like borrowed computer and tutors and lecturers, I'm sure they are all lovely people, but like I don't think I could remember any of their names. They certainly weren't people who I had a relationship with outside of the class. They were just sort of people I saw for 90 minutes a week and then went back to work. There is that element to it, isn't there, Ben, that we – Older people uh, sat around universities debating the merits of the latest Smiths album while reading our Noam Chomsky books in the student pub drinking $2 pints and think that everyone should be allowed to do that. That's part of the student experience, but um, it doesn't happen. But, it, but it's true, and, and Sally, you make you make a really good point. You know, I, I was very fortunate to be involved in student politics and get that, get that little bit of stipend that meant I could spend more time on campus. But... Even then, and I'm not that much older than you, Sally, even then this was part of the the cultural issue is how do you facilitate students being on campus and actually facilitate not just class learning but the broader educational experience. And for many, many people for, for far too long, the university experience has been, can I get that lecture on, on a recording? Can I get those slides emailed to me? Can I get an extension on this assignment because I've, I've got to actually work 40 hours this week to pay the rent. So, yeah, it's. I think you're right. I think it is a by-design function of, of coalition policy, and it's been a long-term project for them. This is not just Alan Tudge, as vile as that man is. This has been right, you can go all the way back, Brendan Nelson and, and probably even before him. But, you know, it's a long-term project for them. Thinking about a, a career as an academic, Sally, because you certainly could be if you wanted to be, would you consider it anymore? Is it just not something that anyone, any young smart person is going to look at it and go, oh, that's for me? I mean, for me personally, like I don't think that I am built like that. Like it took me six years to do my undergraduate degree because I was working full time and I like it was, I would like to think I'm a smart person, but like sort of doing that sort of, academia stuff was I found really difficult. I, yeah, it took me six years to do a three-year undergrad. And then I did half of a master's degree and dropped out of that. So would I be an academic? 
No. But I do know one person my age, two people my age who are, you know, on that trajectory and I know that they find it really hard and disempowering and disappointing and unstable and, yeah. Tell them to become dentists. (laughs) (laughs) That's where the money is. I was going to say, I think it's a, there's a bit of money in dentistry. They have they have a lot of mental health issues. I I, I know someone whose father was a dentist, and there's there's a, I think there's something about staring into the void of people's mouths all day that slowly <laughs> drives you mad. I've heard that as well. The sort of the, the rates of mental illness and mental health struggles in that profession. I wonder why that is. I should we should try and have a dentist on and and be like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what's going on in your world? Open up and say, yeah. ah, Ben Davison, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We can listen to The Week on Wednesday. We can search it on our uh, podcast app of choice. Subscribe away. It comes out every Wednesday, as the name suggests, but also there's a Sunday edition as well, which people can tune in just to get the wrap of the week before we head uh, hurtling towards the next one. And um, and we'll cat- I think we'll have to do this again soon. I've loved it. Thanks so much for having me on, Francis. Sally, always a pleasure to talk to you both. And anytime you want me on, I'm more than happy to be here. Ben Davison there from the week on Wednesday. Sally, thank you as well. Um, I'll report back from the dentist after I've screamed into the void tomorrow. <laughs> Cannot wait. Really looking forward to that. Do Yeah, do fill us in on all the feelings. <laughs> and don't forget, you can subscribe to our podcast uh, on your favourite podcast app, but also leave us a review and a rating. It really helps other people find it. Uh, and uh, you can also give us uh, – you can also follow Sally at Sally Rugg on the socials. I'm at, at St. Frankly, and we'll catch you next week here on The Job. Bye.